1: Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk UNLV.
2: KUNB 91.5. You're here with Tanya. And Alicia. And we have our wonderful guest, Kyle Ethelbach. So today, Kyle and I and Alicia are going to talk about Native American Heritage Month. So, Kyle, before we get started, would you be kind enough to share your origin story with us? How did you get to... Nevada. How did you get to Nevada? I'm Nevada. UNLV UNLV. I gotcha. <laughs> it's still that, Nevada, right? Yeah, we, we good to know we're in Nevada.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. Not a problem at all. You know, I have I, I think uh Pretty extensive history with Las Vegas in particular. I am actually originally from Arizona. Uh, My name is Kyle Ethelbaugh. I'm White Mountain Apache from the Fort Apache Indian Reservation, which is in central eastern Arizona. I basically landed in Las Vegas in about what was that? About twenty four years ago, and I came here for my first professional position. I actually started out as an academic advisor here at UNLV, but my history actually starts a little bit before that. Right now, I oversee federal TRIO programs as well as other outreach and support programs here on campus. So we serve first-generation income-eligible students and students underrepresented in higher education. So my history basically is that I was a part of these programs myself. I was a part of our Upward Bound program uh, through Northern Arizona University, which covered the Hopi, Apache, and Navajo reservations. So I was introduced to college through that program, and then I was a part of the student support services program at the University of Arizona, where I did my undergraduate. And that basically helped me to get through school. So now I oversee those programs that UNLV has here, not Upward Bound, but our college-facing programs. And so the very first college tour that I actually had when I was an Upward Bound student way back in 1989 as a freshman in high school, our first college tour was here to UNLV. So I think it was kind of aligned that way a while back. (laughs) So that was my first intro into understanding uh, college culture, but also being introduced to Las Vegas. So that's a little bit about how I got here and who I am.
2: Wow. Wow. So, you know, it's so funny. Like, so first of all, I love the fact that you're homegrown. I love the fact that, you know, the program that you went through is also the program that you're now part of. And that that seed was planted so early on. So um, I'm going to kick off some questions. You know, we were just talking about this before we got on mic and that the, the, the ever, the changing terms related to what is the appropriate term when discussing Native Americans. Is it Native American? Is it Indian? Is it Indigenous? Um, and how important it is, is it to know the differences in these terms when addressing these populations?
0: Right. That's a really good question. And, and it's one that's, that, that we've also had to keep up with in terms of those from the community. And I think depending on who, who you ask, it, it may change. I always default to American Indian because this is the language that's used in federal law. And so when you talk and refer to um, the Native American community within the federal context, it's always referred to as American Indian or Alaskan Native. And so those are the two primary oversight terms that I use. However, you know, we've grown up with Indian and that sometimes is still used primarily in, in my case with my own community. We We'll refer to ourselves in English as Indian, but in terms of our native languages, we refer to ourselves as we would normally as the people. So for us, Apache being Day, and so that's I think where most of us have landed is as long as we know what we need to call each other then the changing terms are going to be that, just, just that, just the mm-hmm. changing terms. So in the U.S. you have uh, American Indian, Native American, uh, indigenous is starting to come up, as well as aboriginal. Uh, indigenous and aboriginal are primarily found in Canada for the most part, but it is making its way out here. So those are the terms that we use, and either uh, Native American or American Indian is, is fine. I tend to use those interchangeably.
1: And then I noticed um, part of our discussion today should be centered around Native American Heritage Month. Correct, Kyle? So what does that really include for those who are listening? What all is um, included and, and happens during this month?
0: Well, it's a it's a month that's really intended to not only celebrate the continued existence of our people, mm-hmm. but also to share information about us to the general community. At least that's how we treat it here at UNLV. I'm a part of our American Indian Alliance. We work closely with our Native American Student Association, as well as our Native American Alumni Club. And what we have done is tried to put together events for the month of November that are intended to connect ourselves with our students as well as the community and also educate the broader campus community that there's a couple of things happening. One, that we're still here, that we're still part of the fabric of not just the university, but the U.S. as a whole. And then also that we have opportunities to give and to share. You know, there's still things that people don't know, and we're more than happy to provide insight and opportunity for growth and learning with regard to that.
1: I love that. I was going to piggyback, Ryder. You said something about um, what people don't know. I noticed that in some of the events you may be able to speak to this, Kyle, some of the events that take place on campus, they will start with the opening statement where they're giving honor um, to our Native American um, citizens and the culture. Can you kind of explain what that's all about when they're opening up before we host some events and they're giving honor?
0: Right. Um, that, I believe that what you're referring to is the land acknowledgments. Yes, that's
1: exactly what it is. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And those are a relatively recent addition to a, a lot of stages across mm-hmm. the country, I, I believe. I, I Don't quote me on this, but uh, I believe that they have emerged from higher education institutions really taking the onus to um, understand where their history lies mm-hmm. as well. And in understanding that most of higher education institutions do reside on land that was previously owned and occupied by other people. And part of the whole settler colonialism process included using education as a means to take away the culture of the indigenous communities that they Mm. intended to inhabit. And so this was higher education's way of saying we acknowledge our role. And we acknowledge that these individuals still exist and we are on their land and we are visitors to their land. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's intended to be more symbolic than anything. And um, I, I find it really interesting in that when we introduce ourselves, if I'm new to a community and I want to share a story about where I'm from or what have you, I would introduce myself acknowledging myself as being um, who I am from my tribe, from this particular lineage. And so you might be at some of these events where you hear individuals introduce themselves in their native languages. And that's actually what that's, is happening there, is we'll take that opportunity to identify myself, myself as someone who's coming in a good way. Yeah. I'm coming in a good way by telling you that I am from this place. These are who my people are. This is whom I'm descended from specifically. And I come here in a good way, not necessarily in anything negative. And so we've always done that prior to um, colonialism or what have you. You needed a way to understand that I'm acknowledging you as a person, as a people. I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm here to start this conversation in a good way. So it's in a way things that we've already done before different contexts but that's kind of the evolution uh, at least as as I kind of constructed in my mind
1: I learned a lot you just know you in s- a statement yeah
2: you said something really powerful that I don't think a lot of individuals listening might be familiar with so can we talk about the relationship between education and the damage done to native to american indian culture because I know that this was a a foreign concept to me and still I started watching some programs. Mm -hmm. So can you share what you mean by that educational systems have been used to damage American Indian communities in the past?
0: Well, part of the whole process of... Colonization included the taking of indigenous land. And so for the better part of American history, initially there was the intention to acknowledge the individuals that were within communities. And then gradually that changed into what we have seen over history that included a Manifest Destiny. The idea that um, the colonizers were instructed by a higher power that this was going to be their land and their community. And in so doing, they were justified in displacing large groups of people. And part of that process, at least in the 1800s, included um, the education if you will, of American Indian communities, um, specifically starting with children and removing children from their families so that they could be educated in a boarding school system. Mm -hmm. And in that boarding school system, they were not allowed to speak their own language. They were not allowed to have any kind of connection to their cultural cultural heritage, their identity. And so it was basically the breaking of the individual um, through the use of education. And so, you know, there's a, a famous quote by General Pratt, who had um, founded or was a part of the Carlisle Indian School on the East Coast, who had said, you know, education as well as religion, in a lot of cases, were here to break the Indian and save the man, mm. and so or kill the Indian and save the man, excuse me. And so that was its intent. You know, it was a part of the overall process to um, make American Indians a, you know able to be a part of the overall process. And that included disrupting our entire community life ways, including the way we exchanged and uh, marketed and what have you, the business processes that we had there and replaced it with capitalism mm-hmm. and, you know, the acquiring of things rather than the acquiring of knowledge and shared community and kinship.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, a lot of, I, I don't know that a lot of people realize how extensive the process was and that in some cases, as I understand it, there were people in the community that thought that it was something that was going to be beneficial, you know, in the ways that it was marketed to the community and that what that looked like was cutting hair and, you know, um, right. what you were allowed to wear. Speaking mm-hmm. your language, right? you know, was expressly prohibited in those places and spaces and um, I don't know if everyone's familiar, but this went on way into like the nineteen eighties. Right. Like this isn't like a thousand years ago. ago. Right. Yeah, this is this is this is up until current days. Right. And there's still people are still recovering right from the damage done to the community by those processes and those places that were allegedly meant to improve or help, right. but instead decimated community connections. Right. You know, and built a lot of unhealthy systems for the kids coming up under those environments. Right.
0: You know, the interesting thing about that whole uh, paradigm is the fact that I work in education. I work to support students who don't have access to education. Mm-hmm. And this is a central component that's always had me on edge in terms of what my role is. Mm-hmm. You know, And for me, education means something different than what it meant for my grandmother who actually went through the boarding school system. I am a product of her, and basically she went to boarding school, was um, not allowed to speak her own language, actually was beaten in the schools and what have you.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And in those early days, um, I'm Apache, and we were the last to be put on reservations. And in that process, um, actually we were prisoners of war until the 1920s. And so she was the very first of a, a, a generation that was born not as a prisoner of war that was Apache. And so that strong connection to the need to colonize and ensure that especially those fierce Apaches don't, um, you know, jump the reservation and do some damage some more really pushed the education system as well as the church, a number of them, into using the efforts that they had to colonize and really disconnect us from our identities. It's really interesting, too, along those same lines is that Um, America, United States, was founded. um, We're always told, you know, that the pilgrims came Mm -hmm. because they couldn't practice their own religions that they wanted to in England, at least that portion of U.S. history. And so that was a major thing that brought individuals to this land and this community. Yet we weren't granted the ability to practice our own religions until 1978. The democracy of it. Right. And so in 1978, with the passage of the American Indian Religious Religious Freedom Act is when we gained the ability to actually practice our own religions. And by that point, we'd been fairly disconnected from those roots. And now there's a burgeoning movement to reconnect to those identities now.
1: Mm. Very impactful. You meant we, uh, mentioned about languages. And I was, I'm looking at my notes and it says that Native Americans spoke more than 300 languages. And I mean, I had no idea and being forced to not be able to practice your religion, not to speak in your native tongue. How do you educate even more people understanding that may not even know they may be Native American, but not be privy to the fact that your culture is known for over 300 languages? And mm-hmm. how do they decipher? Are they according to your different tribe or how was that um, made up in regards to the 300
0: languages? Well, um, I, I think that's honestly an undercount as well. So, oh, wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, what the, would you say
1: the number you think is?
0: Well, If you look at uh, federal reporting, there Mm -hmm. are 574, I believe, at at this moment, 574 federally recognized tribes. And that means tribes that have been recognized by the U.S. Department of Interior as having a legal status as American Indians. And so each of these communities did also have their own languages Mm -hmm. that they used um, um, prior to colonization. And some are still alive, but for the most part, a lot of the indigenous languages have either died or on their way out and becoming extinct. And so you have burgeoning language development programs all across the country that are trying to save indigenous languages. And that's one of the things that's happening. If people know that they're from an indigenous community, um, more than likely, even the people that are connected to the community probably don't have direct connection to the languages anymore. Um, It's fairly strong in the southwest where you'll find um, indigenous communities that have a stronger connection to their languages Mm -hmm. but on the coasts those are some are entirely extinct now. Wow I was so
1: disappointed to hear that.
2: You know um, you mentioned reservations earlier and you and I were talking about one of my favorite children's reservation dogs because um, I, I don't know that I had a full understanding of what life on a reservation was or what Mm -hmm. it meant to live on a reservation. And one of the reasons I like that show is because I felt like, well, first of all, it was produced, directed, starring, written by um, American Indians. So um, there's an authenticity that is so real there. But I had not realized, even maybe until, I think, COVID, the lack of access and resources that sometimes exist in those communities, so can you share a little bit about what? So, what qualifies as a reservation?
0: Well, uh, reservations themselves are pretty much um, political and legal boundaries. So they're they're not uh, barriers, and only natives can enter. What have you? Um, they are basically political boundaries that draw the distinction from where the state or county has legal authority to oh. where the federal government does. And so. Within American Indian communities, on our reservations, you don't have – well, the federal government is the only jurisdiction that can – that lives there, Mm -hmm. if you will. And so the reservations themselves really started with the – Attempted, um, well, as part of the colonization pr- colonization process, to move into Indian, American Indians to specific lands, out of the way. So there's a large amount of American Indians who live on reservation lands that are not the best. They weren't the best for farming, for growing, for grazing, what have you, because those were being given to the burgeoning frontiersmen or the colonists and what have you that were coming through the lands. And so the reservations themselves developed as places where the federal government moved us so that manifest destiny could take place. Now, there, um, those are still the remnants of it. That's the history of it. My reservation, for example, I mentioned I'm from the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. Interestingly, here, in Las Vegas has a street, Fort Apache. Hmm. But... Oh the Fort Apache was the last one of the last outposts that the federal government used before they transported American Indians in particular Apaches out to the reservation systems that at the time in the late 1800s included Florida North Carolina and Oklahoma mm. so Geronimo and his band were forcibly removed after he had surrendered in Mexico and taken from um, and, and guarded through Fort Apache on our reservation up into Arizona and then across the country. And so in that sense, the, the legal boundaries grew from that to say, okay, now this is a, a space that no longer serves as the physical outpost to move people through or contain them, but rather contains a people legally. And so you have a group of individuals now that are under the auspices of the US Department of Interior, Bureau of Indian Affairs. But these are also spaces now that are communities that are um, taking hold of their identities, and truly embracing our sovereign status. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we have started on the road on within the late 70s and into the 80s and really started developing into the 90s and into the 2000s, the notion of our communities as sovereign identities and sovereign communities. So we control our nations. We control our status. And we're slowly moving to that type of space now. That fluctuates depending on who's in office and who's mm-hmm. controlling what and what have you. But, you know, that's that's where we're at.
1: I always like a uh, redemption or victorious story. And I just like the resilience behind your your culture. You know, just I I, I mean, we have some uh, some similar similar um, experiences as people of um, color, African-American people. Um, Dr. Tanya and I, but I love the idea or I appreciate the idea that um, though your people have gone through a lot, you're still resilient and um, putting things into place that can make a better life for your culture right. and experiences. So I, I salute you, uh, Kyle, for being a representation. Like you said, you started in a program. Now you're now serving and bringing awareness within the program and working uh, for the program that will help a lot of generations to come. So.
2: And thank you for being here, because I feel like there's so many things that are unsaid and unknown mm-hmm. about the American Indian population, you know, um, right. now that we've moved past Westerns and all that ridiculousness right. Right. that came along with that. Can you talk a little bit more about sovereignty? What does it mean to have tribal sovereignty?
0: Uh, sovereignty is basically the reference to um running and controlling ourselves sovereign nations and so a sovereign i think for my mind i tended to think of and use that term for kings and queens Mm. you know they they had their sovereign status and they oversaw a land a kingdom what have you um the american indian sovereignty is actually built into our constructs that the federal government created um knowingly or unknowingly, but they're they're there, wherein we actually have our own identities. And this happened in the 1930s um, when the United States was starting to enter into the... um, what is that? The the Great Depression. There you go. There so, you go. <laughs> thank you. And, and during that time, wherein mm-hmm. you had a group up until that point where, that were really domestic dependent nations. You know, we have this group of indivi- individuals that were um, prisoners of war and were taking care of them. Mm-hmm. We can't afford to take care of them anymore. So let's give them their. Um, they can take care of themselves now. Mm. So that actually started to emerge from there and through the years and decades, it's actually moved into a more formal um, system of organization wherein we have our own governments, we have our own police forces, we have our own system and infrastructures on our reservation communities that we control uh, that the federal government does not have insight and oversight like they used to Mm -hmm. prior to to these movements that have started. Uh, That's highly dependent on... Money, funds, how do do we actually sustain ourselves to ensure that these infrastructures exist? And that's where I think a lot of communities are having these conversations, and certainly why you see the development of the casino industry on a lot of Indian communities, Mm. where that took root because that was something that they could do to sustain. And so now it's diversifying itself more, and we have a lot of uh, opportunity available to us because we took back our identities, and said, this is who we are. And fortunately, we had supporters and allies um, at the state as well as the federal level that supported those efforts.
1: Amazing.
2: So finally have a sense of agency. Yes. You know, you get mm-hmm. to control your own destiny. Right. Towards, to a degree, I guess. Right. Because it depends on, you know, yeah. where the leadership stands on that particular thing. Um, so I want to ask, can you tell me something about... I, I guess we all have things in our culture that we're particularly proud of. Right. So can you tell me what in your culture are you particularly proud of?
0: Go right. ahead. Term- I'm sorry. No the, the problem. I, I, there's quite a few things. Um, one thing that actually I, I refer a lot to is we are matrilineal and matrilocal, at least from my community. And what that means is our descendancy is traced through our mothers. Mm. And not through our fathers. Mm. So although I have my father's last name, my ancestry is actually measured through my mother's bloodline. Oh, wow. And so when I introduce myself in my native language, I make reference to um, the Deschidin, born to the Navajo, which is Utaha. Utah. So we're the horizontally red people born from the Navajo, and that's where my lineage comes from. That was my mother's heritage, her mother's, and then the, her grandmother's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I, I think we really need to acknowledge the role that our, uh, our mothers, our sisters play in really identifying and making it known who we are. Because were it not for them, we wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to give all the props to, to the warriors, the fighters, and and what have you. But women could be those too, and they were. However, it was these individuals that allowed for our bloodlines to continue, and these are the individuals that actually teach us about our history and our core values and who we're supposed to be and our obligations. When all of those come together, so for me, that's always something that that I really admire um, the most. And I I see quite a bit when I, especially in higher ed spaces, when you see faculty of color, in particular American Indians, and I I tend to see more American Indian women. And to hear their stories is just so amazing. Talking about, I was doing my doctoral program and I had uh, my child in in the, you know, the carrier right beside me while I was in class, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's resilience. And that's, you know, wanting something better for the future and that is something that I think just resounds with me because we don't we don't give them that that proper um, honor and right yeah recognition right. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: We only have a few minutes left, which I'm disappointing, but... Me too. I, I I'm be, suddenly I'm sad. Like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm like, like wait man. a minute. He's, you, you can't see him behind. He's giving us a countdown, letting us know. And I, I I really hope that you come back and speak with us again, Seriously. outside of it being Native American Heritage Month. we can. This is something that we definitely need to continue the conversation about. Um, with that being said, can you tell us, Kyle, if, if for the audience that's listening, where can they find out more information about your programs and some of the services and things that you've mentioned? And then also, we want Want to leave the floor open for you to give any final words, anything that you want to leave, um, leave with the listeners. Um, as a last touch as we close out the interview.
0: Right. Um, my, my formal connection to UNLV is I am the director of our college programs. So we basically house our college success programs, including TRIO Student Support Services, TRIO McNair, and our ANAPISI program that are housed here at UNLV. So I oversee those projects. You can find out more information at UNLV.edu slash CAEO. And those are the academic support programs that we have here within uh, UNLV. The other role that I have is I'm a member of our American Indian Alliance here on campus. And that's, I believe, UNLV.edu slash AIA. I believe that's it. If it's not, it's American Indian Alliance in the search bar Mm -hmm. at UNLV.edu. They can Google it. Right. (laughs) And and that houses information Um, that's pretty much all volunteer basis. There's a group of us that maintains that information to be a part of, but also to uh, instruct um, individuals on campus as well as to learn from others. Um, And I guess the thing that I would want individuals to know is, when we're still here. You know, I think there's this this romanticized notion that American Indians are no longer here. Mm -hmm. And if they are, they have to appear a certain way and Mm -hmm. look a certain way. And I think um, the the show Reservation Dogs demonstrates that really beautifully in Mm -hmm. that they show – contemporary american indians mm-hmm. in the, the environments we grew up in but there's also the references to the okay we're going to have this stoic indian on a horse but <laughs> like, he's, but he's great humorous show. right he's, great show. he's so funny and that yeah. he's making fun of the fact that you know we tend to think of him like this so let's make him the stoic mm. lines, the indian, but but yeah but use that to actually infuse the humor that exists within our cultures and I tend to hear that a lot with my family and our communities is that were it not for humor we probably would have been eradicated and decimated that's right our humor is what has kept us here and our smiles that has connected us to creator and of course our mothers who brought us here
2: I love it oh my goodness this has been wonderful and and enriching for my soul And I'm so glad you're here and I'm looking forward to more conversations. So look for an email or two.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I second that. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. um, Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. (laughs) Thank
1: you. For more Let's Talk UNLV, be sure to follow us on social media where you can get the latest updates on the show plus great behind-the-scenes content. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk UNLV Podcast, Twitter at Let's Talk UNLV, and Instagram at Let's Talk UNLV Pod.